Chapter One, Part Two of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter One, Part Two. Saint Jago, Capigiverd Islands. Fernando Noronha, February 20th. As far as I was enabled to observe, during the few hours we stayed at this place, the constitution of the island is volcanic, but probably not of a recent date. The most remarkable feature is a conical hill, about 1,000 feet high, the upper part of which is exceedingly steep, and on one side overhangs its base. The rock is phonolite, and is divided into irregular columns. On viewing one of these isolated masses, at first one is inclined to believe that it has been suddenly pushed up in a semi-fluid state. At Santa Helena, however, I ascertained that some pinnacles, of a nearly similar figure and constitution, had been formed by the injection of melted rock into yielding strata, which thus had formed the moulds for these gigantic obelisks. The whole island is covered with wood, but from the dryness of the climate there is no appearance of luxuriance. Halfway up the mountain, some great masses of the columnar rock, shaded by laurel trees and ornamented by others covered with fine pink flowers, but without a single leaf, gave a pleasing effect to the nearer parts of the scenery. Bahia, or San Salvador, Brazil February 29th. The day has passed delightfully. Delight itself, however, is a weak term to express the feelings of a naturalist who, for the first time, has wandered by himself in a Brazilian forest. The elegance of the grasses, the novelty of the parasitical plants, the beauty of the flowers, the glossy green of the foliage, but above all the general luxuriance of the vegetation, filled me with admiration. A most paradoxical mixture of sound and silence pervades the shady parts of the wood. The noise from the insects is so loud that it may be heard even in a vessel anchored several hundred yards from the shore. Yet within the recesses of the forest a universal silence appears to reign. To a person fond of natural history, such a day as this brings with it a deeper pleasure than he can ever hope to experience again. After wandering about for some hours, I returned to the landing-place, but, before reaching it, I was overtaken by a tropical storm. I tried to find shelter under a tree, which was so thick that it would never have been penetrated by common English rain. But here, in a couple of minutes, a little torrent flowed down the trunk. It is to this violence of the rain that we must attribute the verdure at the bottom of the thickest woods. If the showers were like those of a colder climate, the greater part would be absorbed or evaporated before it reached the ground. I will not at present attempt to describe the gaudy scenery of this noble bay, because in our homeward voyage we called here a second time, and I shall then have occasion to remark on it. Along the whole coast of Brazil, for a length of at least two thousand miles, and certainly for a considerable space inland, Wherever solid rock occurs, it belongs to a granitic formation, 
the circumstance of this enormous area being constituted of materials which most geologists believe to have been crystallized when heated under pressure gives rise to many curious reflections was this effect produced beneath the depths of a profound ocean or did a covering of strata formerly extend over it which has since been removed can we believe that any power acting for a time short of infinity could have denuded the granite over so many thousand square leagues on a point not far from the city where a rivulet entered the sea i observed a fact connected with a subject discussed by humboldt in his personal narration volume five part one page eighteen at the cataracts of the great rivers orinoco nile and congo the cyanitic rocks are coated by a black substance appearing as if they had been polished with plumbago the layer is of extreme thinness and on analysis by berzelius it was found to consist of the oxides of manganese and iron in the orinoco it occurs on the rocks periodically washed by the floods and in those parts alone where the stream is rapid or as the indians say the rocks are black where the waters are white here the coating is of a rich brown instead of a black color and seems to be composed of ferruginous matter alone hand specimens fail to give a just idea of these brown burnished stones which glitter in the sun's rays they occur only within the limits of the tidal waves and as the rivulet slowly trickles down the surf must supply the polishing power of the cataracts and the great rivers in like manner the rise and fall of the tide probably answer to the periodical inundations and thus the same effects are produced under apparently different but really similar circumstances the origin however of these coatings of metallic oxides which seem as if cemented to the rocks is not understood and no reason i believe can be assigned for their thickness remaining the same one day i was amused by watching the habits of the diodon antenatus which was caught swimming near the shore this fish with its flabby skin is well known to possess the singular power of distending itself into a nearly spherical form after having been taken out of the water for a short time and then again immersed in it a considerable quantity of both water and air is absorbed by the mouth and perhaps likewise by the branchial orifices this process is effected by two methods the air is swallowed and is then forced into the cavity of the body its return being prevented by a muscular contraction which is externally visible but the water enters in a gentle stream through the mouth which is kept wide open and motionless this latter action must therefore depend on suction the skin about the abdomen is much looser than that on the back hence during the inflation the lower surface becomes far more distended than the upper and the fish in consequence floats with its back downwards cuvier doubts whether the diodon in this position is able to swim but not only can it thus move forward in a straight line but it can turn round to either side this latter movement is effected solely by the aid of the pectoral fins the tail being collapsed and not used from the body being buoyed up with so much air the branchial openings are out of water but a stream drawn in by the mouth constantly flows through them 
The fish, having remained in this distended state for a short time, generally expelled the air and water with considerable force from the branchial apertures and mouth. It could emit, at will, a certain portion of the water, and it appears, therefore, probable that this fluid is taken in partly for the sake of regulating its specific gravity. This diodon possessed several means of defense. It could give a severe bite, and could eject water from its mouth to some distance, at the same time making a curious noise by the movement of its jaws. By the inflation of its body, the papillae, with which the skin is covered, become erect and pointed. But the most curious circumstance is that it secretes from the skin of its belly, when handled, a most beautiful carmine-red fibrous matter, which stains ivory and paper in so permanent a manner that the tint is retained with all its brightness to the present day. I am quite ignorant of the nature and use of this secretion. I have heard from Dr. Allen of Forres that he has frequently found a diadon floating alive and distended in the stomach of the shark, and that on several occasions he has known it eats its way, not only through the coats of the stomach, but through the sides of the monster, which has thus been killed. Who would ever have imagined that a little soft fish could have destroyed the great and savage shark? March 18th. We sailed from Bahia. A few days afterwards, when not far distant from the Abrolhos islets, my attention was called to a reddish-brown appearance in the sea. The whole surface of the water, as it appeared under a weak lens, seemed as if covered by chopped bits of hay, with their ends jagged. These are minute cylindrical confervae, in bundles or rafts, from twenty to sixty in each. Mr. Berkeley informs me that they are the same species, Trichodesmium erythraeum, with that found over large spaces in the Red Sea, and whence its name of Red Sea is derived. Their numbers must be infinite. The ship passed through several bands of them, one of which was about ten yards wide, and, judging from the mud-like color of the water, at least two and a half miles long. In almost every long voyage some account is given of these confervae. They appear especially common in the sea near Australia, and off Cape Leeuwin I found an allied but smaller and apparently different species. Captain Cook, in his third voyage, remarks that the sailors gave to this appearance the name of sea sawdust. Near Keeling Atoll, in the Indian Ocean, I observed many little masses of confervae, a few inches square, consisting of long cylindrical threads of excessive thinness, so as to be barely visible to the naked eye, mingled with other, rather larger bodies, finely conical at both ends. Two of these are shown in the woodcut united together. They vary in length from 0 0.04 to 0 0.06, and even to 0 0.08 of an inch in length and in diameter from point zero zero six to point zero zero eight of an inch. Near one extremity of the cylindrical part, a green septum, formed of granular matter, and thickest in the middle, may generally be seen. This, I believe, is the bottom of a most delicate colorless sack, composed of a pulpy substance, which lines the exterior case, but does not extend within the extreme conical points. In some specimens, small but perfect spheres of brownish granular matter 
supplied the places of the septa, and I observed the curious process by which they were produced. The pulpy matter of the internal coating suddenly grouped itself into lines, some of which assumed a form radiating from a common center. It then continued, with an irregular and rapid movement, to contract itself, so that in the course of a second the whole was united into a perfect little sphere, which occupied the position of the septum at one end of the now quite hollow case. The formation of the granular sphere was hastened by any accidental injury. I may add that frequently a pair of these bodies were attached to each other, as represented above, cone beside cone, at that end where the septum occurs. I will add here a few other observations connected with the discoloration of the sea from organic causes. On the coast of Chile, a few leagues north of Concepcion, the beagle one day passed through great bands of muddy water, exactly like that of a swollen river, and again a degree south of Valparaiso, when fifty miles from the land, the same appearance was still more extensive. Some of the water placed in a glass was of a pale reddish tint, and, examined under a microscope, was seen to swarm with minute animalcula darting about and often exploding. Their shape is oval and contracted in the middle by a ring of vibrating curved ciliae. It was, however, very difficult to examine them with care, for almost the instant motion ceased, even while crossing the field of vision, their bodies burst. Sometimes both ends burst at once, sometimes only one, and a quantity of coarse brownish granular matter was ejected. The animal, an instant before bursting, expanded to half again its natural size, when the explosion took place about fifteen seconds after the rapid progressive motion had ceased. In a few cases, it was preceded for a short interval by a rotary movement on the longer axis. About two minutes after any number were isolated in a drop of water, they thus perished. The animals move with a narrow apex forwards, by the aid of their vibratory ciliae, and generally by rapid starts. They are exceedingly minute, and quite invisible to the naked eye, only covering a space equal to the square of the thousandth of an inch. Their numbers were infinite, for the smallest drop of water which I could remove contained very many. In one day we passed through two spaces of water thus stained, one of which alone must have extended over several square miles. What incalculable numbers of these microscopic animals! The color of the water, as seen at some distance, was like that of a river which has flowed through a red clay district, but under the shade of the vessel's side it was quite as dark as chocolate. The line where the red and blue water joined was distinctly defined. The weather for some days previously had been calm, and the ocean abounded to an unusual degree with living creatures. In the sea around Tierra del Fuego, and at no great distance from the land, I have seen narrow lines of water with a bright red color, from the number of crustacea, which somewhat resemble in form large prawns. The sealers call them whale food. Whether whales feed on them, I do not know, but terns, cormorants, and immense herds of great unwieldy seals derive, on some parts of the coast, their chief sustenance from these swimming crabs. Seamen invariably attribute the discoloration of the water to spawn, but I found this to be the case 
only on one occasion. At the distance of several leagues from the archipelago of the Galapagos, the ship sailed through three strips of a dark yellowish or mud-like water. These strips were some miles long, but only a few yards wide, and they were separated from the surrounding water by a sinuous yet distinct margin. The color was caused by little gelatinous balls, about the fifth of an inch in diameter, in which numerous minute spherical ovules were embedded. They were of two distinct kinds, one being of a reddish color, and of a different shape from the other. I cannot form a conjecture as to what two kinds of animals these belonged. Captain Colnett remarks that this appearance is very common among the Galapagos Islands, and that the directions of the bands indicate that of the currents. In the described case, however, the line was caused by the wind. The only other appearance which I have to notice is a thin oily coat on the water, which displays iridescent colors. I saw a considerable tract of the ocean thus covered on the coast of Brazil. The seamen attributed it to the putrefying carcass of some whale, which probably was floating at no great distance. I do not here mention the minute gelatinous particles, hereafter to be referred to, which are frequently dispersed throughout the water, for they are not sufficiently abundant to create any change of color. There are two circumstances in the above accounts which appear remarkable. First, how do the various bodies which form the bands with defined edges keep together? In the case of the prawn-like crabs, their movements were as co-instantaneous as in a regiment of soldiers, but this cannot happen from anything like voluntary action with the ovules, or the confervae, nor is it possible among the infusoria. Secondly, what causes the length and narrowness of the bands? The appearance so much resembles that which may be seen in every torrent, where the stream uncoils into long streaks, the froth collected in the eddies, that I must attribute the effect to a similar action either of the currents, of the air, or sea. Under this supposition, we must believe that the various organized bodies are produced in certain favorable places, and are thence removed by the set of either wind or water. I confess, however, there is a very great difficulty in imagining any one spot to be the birthplace of the millions of millions of animalcula and confervae. For whence come the germs at such points, the parent bodies having been distributed by the winds and waves over the immense ocean? But on no other hypothesis can I understand their linear grouping. I may add that Scoresby remarks that green water abounding with pelagic animals is invariably found in a certain part of the Arctic Sea. End of chapter 1, part 2 Recording by Scott Robbins